Hello and welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend, produced by Rick Scott and Sebastian O'Dell. Law and Legend brings you myths, legends, and fables from the world of folklore and mythology. We're telling stories the way that they're meant to be told, in the style of traditional storytelling and enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Law and Legend is called The Gates of Dream, exploring tales of encounters between the heroines and heroes of Greek myth and the gods and the spirits of the Greek underworld, the lands of dream, death, and darkest fate. This episode comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Sean Powell, Christy Carson, Shawnee Basket, and Paul Jackson. Please consider joining our heroic patrons in supporting the podcast by becoming a subscriber. Visit our website and click on Support Us for more details. This is our 10th episode, and in it, Odysseus reflects on his deadly rivalry with Palamedes, one of the warlord Agamemnon's most skillful generals on the battlefield of Troy. From storyteller Sebastian O'Dell, and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy, this is The General's Dream. A message came to Odysseus in his fortress high up in the mountains of Ithaca. The raiders that had been spotted on his island had begun to make their way up the pass towards him. There was no doubting it then. They had learned the king's location. It was still unknown if the king's son was among their number. There were too many for Odysseus's soldiers to rout on the approach, even in the vice of a mountain pass. Instead, the soldiers would bolster the defences here and await the oncoming siege. And so the soldiers began to prepare for battle. The serving boy came to Odysseus's side to begin arraigning the king in his armour. Armour that Odysseus had not worn in many years, and which he had hoped to never wear again. It had been the armour of Achilles, and after the hero's death, Odysseus had won it in the contest of words with the mighty Ajax. Odysseus appeared distracted, so the boy spoke. He commented on how regal and powerful Odysseus appeared while wearing the armour and that it was foolish that anyone would doubt it would fit or suit him. He was referring to something Ajax had said during the contest, but Odysseus was in no mood for flattery. Ajax was a great warrior, he replied, staring forward, and he would have worn this armour with pride and dignity. He would have never resented the chance to wear it again. Surely, the serving boy said, you do not suggest that the chieftains were wrong to award you this prize. Wrong? Odysseus asked, now looking at the boy. And right? These did not enter my thoughts for a second. I never thought that wisdom would prevail upon the mind of Agamemnon. My cunning, my wit, my deft judgment, all these were just means to my end. Now Odysseus walked to the window and looked out on the land of Ithaca below him. All the time I spent fighting, and as long that I spent on my journeys, I had no doubts in myself. All that I did made sense. I knew what I fought for, what I lied for and cheated for. But now all that I struggled for is gone. I cast out my wife and son, and I skulk in this hidden fortress in my own lands. 
Now I am sure that Telemachus is leading the raiders who bear down on us. If he is, shall I go out as a hero, replete in this fine armour, and kill my own son? If I do not, will I allow him to damn himself as a patricide? At the last, I could always justify myself to my family. And I wonder, now, what sort of man is Odysseus? He does not look the same to me anymore. If, as your story told us, mankind are to act as their own judges, how will they judge me? The serving boy looked surprised. Men will judge you just as you have already heard in the songs of the bards. The man who breached the walls of Troy without throwing a single spear, with a horde of Greek warriors hidden within a wooden horse. The Greeks will know you always as their finest general. Do not make of me some noble servant of the Greek people, Odysseus replied. For all I have given them, I have stolen from them as well. In time, the songs will remember these deeds as well. If Telemachus were here, I would tell him a tale of the ignoble deeds that I have done for his sake, before I banished him, robbing him of his birthright. But he is not here, so I will tell it to you instead. It begins on a beautiful morning on this island, many years ago now. I stood outside the palace and watched the mist clear, smelling the sweet fragrance of the herbs growing by my door. Thinking of my life here with my wife and son, I felt that I was the luckiest man alive. Most of all, I was glad that long before I had failed to win the hand of Helen. Yes, I was one of her suitors, and I bitterly envied fair-haired Menelaus when I realised that Helen would choose him and not me. Yet in time she proved unfaithful to him, and eloped with Paris, Prince of Troy. Meanwhile, my failure with Helen caused me to turn my eye to wise Penelope, and soon we were married. She was my equal in wit, and we could talk for hours together. Now she had borne my son, Telemachus, and together we would watch him grow from a babe in arms to a man as strong and wise as his father. But on this day, my peace was broken. A servant rushed up from the harbour to tell me that a ship had arrived. The captain was a chieftain named Palamedes, he said, who had been sent here by Menelaus. Palamedes would say no more until he spoke with me in the palace. I knew immediately what this meant. Menelaus was calling in my oath, the one that I had sworn along with all of Helen's suitors. You must understand, Helen was the most beautiful woman in all the lands, so all the greatest kings had assembled to win her hand. Her father, Tyndareus, feared that choosing any one of these men could make him dozens of powerful enemies. So I presented him with a solution, to make each suitor swear an oath that if they were not chosen, they would fight to defend the claim of the man who was. Any man who sought vengeance for the snub would have to wage war against all the most powerful people in Greek lands. Each suitor agreed, and when Menelaus was chosen, peace was assured. I thought that to be the end of it. But now Menelaus had lost his bride, 
and he was calling me to honour my oath, and to wage a war on Paris and his father Priam in their impregnable citadel of Troy. I looked at the wife and son I would have to leave, who I might never see again. For all that I had sworn an oath, I could not honour it. An idea began to take shape within my mind. Penelope looked at me. Whatever you are planning, she said, I am with you. Tell me what I must do, and it is done. When Palamedes came to the palace, I was not inside. One of my servants told him that they had seen me ploughing the fields behind the palace. And there he found me, hitching an ox and an ass to the same plough. When I drove them forward, the two pulled unevenly, causing the plough to carve a jagged, chaotic path across the field. Penelope tried to stop me, and I viciously rebuked her for it. Please, she begged Palamedes, help me stop him. There is no reasoning with him when he has a turn like this. I fear his mind is not sound. The men of Palamedes backed away, concerned that Penelope was right, and there was no way a madman could lead armies in battle. They would have to leave me here. But Palamedes himself narrowed his eyes at Penelope. Without saying a word, he snatched our infant son from her grasp and cast him down to the earth, directly into the path of the oncoming plough. I let out a cry and pulled back the animals as hard as I could. The plough came to rest, just inches from Telemachus's face. I faced Palamedes in a bloody rage. Palamedes smiled and said, he seems quite sane to me. So I was shipped off to the sun-baked beaches of Troy, where Calchas the seer foresaw that we would fight for ten years before the city fell. It is a mercy I never knew how much more the fates had in store for me, because the thought of ten years tore my heart in two. In that time, Telemachus would have grown from infancy and learned the skills he would need in life without me. My heart burned with hatred for Palamedes. He had not only taken me from my family, but had he been wrong about my madness, or if I had reacted slower, he would have killed my son. He thought his act a clever one, but it would be the most foolish error he ever made. I did not make my hatred known to the others. Palamedes was very well respected. I always behaved civilly towards him, all the while studying him, learning everything I could, until the moment came for me to strike. Palamedes had a ferocious intellect, which saw things most men could not. Anyone who spoke with him would say he was among the smartest men they ever met. As a young man, he had sailed to the Eastern Islands and to the port of Miletus in Anatolia, where he had met merchants from all over the world. Unlike other Greeks, he was not suspicious of these foreigners and spent his time learning from them. Then he brought this knowledge home, and in time, he invented a new system for measuring and weighing goods. With more exact knowledge of the quantity of goods traded, trust in trade improved and already it was becoming easier to find buyers for your goods. This made Palamedes a favourite of the Greek people. 
Both the generals and the soldiers of the army loved Palamedes. He had a great head for battle strategy. But more importantly, he brought us a game he had invented called Knuckle Bones. It is played all over now, but then it was new, and our men delighted in challenging one another to a throw of the bones. Ten years is an awfully long time to spend at war, spending days watching comrades die at your feet and sleeping dank nights in the hollow ships. The troops relished any entertainment they could find. Though I soon formulated a plan against him, for these reasons I knew I could not accuse Palamedes of treachery and hoped to persuade the others. Both circumstance and supernatural forces would have to be in my favour. Nine years of the seer's prophecy passed in the shadow of that citadel, and we still did not look close to taking it. Grim death lurked around every corner, and with every assault, more men succumbed to it. Rumblings began among those who remained. Some said that Troy could not be taken, that some charm of the gods must watch over it. Agamemnon and Menelaus began to fear the collapse of their armies if these rumours continued. Then one day, I captured Priam's son Helenus and tricked him into revealing the secret of Troy's great strength. I bragged about how simple it had been to capture him, and I insulted the religion of the Trojans. Indignant and insecure, Helenus could not resist bragging in return, and he told us that we would never take the city because of a charm that Zeus had given them. It was called the Palladium. Some men listening gasped. The Palladium was known to those well-versed in legend. A wooden statue of the goddess Pallas, carved by Athena herself, it guaranteed that the city that held it could not fall. At this, the rumblings in the troops became worse. A meeting was called among the generals to decide what to do. It was there that Palamedes took the floor and gave me my opportunity. Friends, he began, I have long feared that it was not possible to breach the walled city. Now, proof of this has fallen from the lips of her prince. They hold the fabled Palladium, and Zeus will protect the city against any assault. Will we go up against the might of the Olympian? Brave though we are, we will achieve nothing by continuing to throw Greek bodies against these unbreakable walls. And when we are all killed, down to the very last Greek on the battlefield, what then? Our cities are all undefended at home. Surely the Trojans will see an opportunity. And if not them, then another empire, or even hordes of raiders from the sea, will bear down upon our homes, sack our most prized treasures, take captive our wives, and drown our sons in the wine-dark sea. Nine years you have been without your families. Take the chance to return to them. It may well be the last you'll ever get. With that, he finished speaking. Some chieftains cried that Palamedes was betraying the Greek cause, or they accused him of cowardice. These charges rang false, though. The generals gathered had served alongside Palamedes for years, and they knew he was no traitor. In fact, 
His wise counsel seemed to be winning over the assembly. Few men commanded the same respect as Palamedes. Palamedes himself knew this, but he also knew exactly who else did command that respect. This is why he looked directly at me as he reminded us of our families. More than once in the past, I had persuaded the men not to withdraw the armies from Troy. Make no mistake, I was furious to have been dragged into this war to begin with, but now I was in it, and I would not accept the dishonour of failure and retreat. When Odysseus sets out to do something, he does not fail. Palamedes thought that for all my determination, I could not desire a suicide mission. I had too much love for Penelope and Telemachus. I hated him for trying to use them like this, just as he had used them to bring me here in the first place. So I stood up to speak. Hearken to me, you Greeks, I said. I am not cowed by this talk of heavenly charms, and nor should you be. What will the song say of us if our victory was foretold to come after ten years of war, and then we ran away after nine of them? They would say that we are not just cowards, but fools as well. We too have gods of broad heaven on our side, and they will not allow us to die in the dust. I hear that you are all concerned by the power of this idol, but don't you see? It doesn't make them strong, it makes them vulnerable. Yesterday, Palamedes or I might have tried a hundred different gambits to breach the tiniest hole in those walls. Today, we know exactly what to do. We need only confiscate the Palladium, and then Troy will be ours for the taking. For anyone with doubts, who believes that we cannot take the idol from under the noses of the Trojans, I will prove it to you. I will be the one to steal it, whether anyone will help me or not. Athena will not deny her idol to one of her heroes fighting by his daring and his wits. The chieftains, hearing a man speak so fearlessly, imagined that they too were full of such courage. It was agreed that we must stay and fight. Palamedes had miscalculated. The next morning, Agamemnon, shepherd of the host, came to visit my tent. He was delighted that I had quelled the insubordination in his ranks. He promised me great riches for winning round the generals, and even more if I succeeded in capturing the Palladium. But I would not meet his gaze. I merely looked at the floor, troubled. Agamemnon asked me what was wrong. Then, when I would not answer, he pressed me. When I judged I had resisted enough, I told him I was troubled by a dream I had seen last night, though I was sure it was only a fancy. Agamemnon demanded that I relate it to him. Well, I saw the figure of King Priam wandering around our encampment. I don't know how he got in, but there he was. In amazement, I followed him until he stopped at the entrance to a tent, pulled aside the door and entered. I slipped in behind him. There was a man sat in the tent already, but there was no candlelight there, so I could not make out who it was. I didn't hear or I don't recall what they said to each other, but they seemed to come to some kind of agreement. They shook hands to seal their bargain, and then Priam drew something from his robe. Don't ask me how it happened, but it was a large chest filled with Trojan treasures, which he laid upon the floor. Then he left, seemingly without noticing me at all. Then it was just me and the stranger in his tent. 
and I saw that the stranger had taken a spade and began to dig a hole in the ground, presumably to bury the chest. Though he now came closer to me, I drifted into wakefulness before I could see who it was. Agamemnon was a superstitious man, and he did not like to ignore the portents of a dream. His ire had been steadily rising as I spoke. You didn't see the man, he said, but you saw the tent. Would you know it if you saw it again? Slowly, I nodded, and I said that I thought I would. So he led me through the camp, and stopped me in front of each tent as we walked. And at each tent, I would look, and stroke my beard, and then shake my head and say, no, not this one. And then we would move on, until we came to the tent of Palamedes. The man was dragged from his tent without an explanation. Soldiers were sent in to search it, and soon enough, beneath a rug, they found a patch of freshly laid earth. And of course, when it was dug up, they found a large chest of Trojan treasures. Palamedes was tried for treason. He argued furiously that he had worked every day of his life in service for the Greeks. He reminded us of all his wondrous inventions, which had only been to further the cause of his people. Had anyone brought as much to Greece as he had? Why would he now throw away his honour and reputation for a box of Trojan trinkets? What's more, could Agamemnon find one man who had seen him bring this chest into the camp? Did it not make more sense that it had been brought from somewhere inside the camp itself? It was all argued very compellingly. Any reasonable judge would have had to conclude that Palamedes was innocent. But his judge was Agamemnon, the king who had harboured fury and disgust at Palamedes for trying to draw his armies away from the war, had been given an opportunity to punish him. Palamedes was put to death. Many weeks later, a ship arrived on the beaches of Troy and an old man came ashore. This was Norpleus, father of Palamedes. He had sailed for weeks to be here, to demand an explanation and the return of his son's body. He would not believe Palamedes could be guilty of treachery. Agamemnon was in no mood to give an explanation, but he granted that the body might be returned, and the limp, silent form of Palamedes was lain in the arms of his father. Norpleus cradled the head of his son and lamented. O oh, Palamedes, dear to my heart, what have they done? They have slain the fairest flower of Greece. And he wept without restraint. Then he laid Palamedes upon the sand and looked up at the chieftains with tear-blinded eyes. Tell me, he said, who accused my son of this crime? I will not leave this place until I know. Tell me, and then beg forgiveness of great Zeus that you believed the word of that man. Should I have stepped forward then, if the life of Telemachus demanded the death of Palamedes? Should I have had the courage to declare it to his father? Perhaps this could have prevented the worst of what was to come. 
We will never know, because it was Agamemnon and not me who broke the silence. He had condemned Palamedes to his doom, and would not now be told that it was a mistake. Enraged, he told the old man that he should be grateful even to have received the body of this traitor. He would get nothing further here, and it would be wise to leave before he drew the wrath of Agamemnon's armies. He gave me cover for my silence, and I took it. Norpleus did not leave, however. He set up an encampment by his ship, and that night he performed the funeral rites for his son. The rebukes of Agamemnon could not keep those who had love for Palamedes from making their way over and paying their respects. I did not go, of course, but a compatriot of mine told me what took place there. When Norpleus had poured the libations, he began to speak of his son. Palamedes, when you were born, I was tired. Decades of strife in our kingdoms had made me cynical. I carried no great hope for the Greeks. But you blew all that away. You were bright, quick, and endlessly curious. You breathed a new life into me and I soon delighted in learning ever more, just to satisfy your constant hunger. You were never too proud to admit you didn't know something. You possessed virtues that most Greeks barely even comprehend. Before you reached manhood, I knew you would far excel me in intellect, and hope for the future awakened in me again. I knew you would carry our family name to great things. You proved me wrong so many times, Palamedes. I believed that life among merchants was beneath you, but then you showed me what that experience could bring. The finest moment of my life was watching you frantically explaining how the new system of standard weights would work. With this war, I wanted to be wrong again. No matter what I said of the dangers of serving men like Agamemnon, truthfully, I wanted to share your passion for the Greek kingdoms, all united as one. I chose to believe you, but they took us both for fools. With this brutal act, all my faith is gone. The Greek kingdoms are a sham for the blind ambition of greedy men who seize what they can at the expense of the noble and the good. I owe them no more loyalty. From this display, the men concluded that grief had driven Norpleus mad. Many were frightened of what he might do next, and so the numbers quickly dwindled from around the fire. Men began to tell others what they had heard there, and slowly, word found its way to Agamemnon. The next morning, he and Menelaus had the old man's encampment surrounded, and they gave him an ultimatum. Leave now, or face the same fate as Palamedes. To our shock, the old man merely nodded blankly, told his men to pack up their encampment, and he sailed away from Troy with his son. We thought we had won, both Agamemnon and myself. More than anything, this complacency was our crime. Agamemnon believed that his power gave him the freedom to act as he saw fit without fear of consequence. But if you slay a man's son, do not expect to escape without consequences. 
Remember the tale that you told me of the events that took place in the house of Atreus. It was Norpleus, on his return to Greece, who introduced Clytemnestra to Aegisthus, knowing that they both harboured hatred for their king. No matter how much of those events he planned, Norpleus lived to see his son's executioner slain. As for me, when the war was won, I had all but forgotten the incident. Though I had visited upon Norpleus what Palamedes had only threatened upon me, I fancied that my success was the prize of my superior strategy. I had hid my rage and acted only when the moment was right. Norpleus had shown his hand too soon, and had left Troy without even getting my name. But though he did not reveal it at the time, I have reason to believe that he did learn it, in conspiratorial whispers by the firelight in his camp, and I will tell you why. When the Greek ships finally made it back across the Aegean Sea, a storm struck the fleet off the coast of Euboea. In darkness, wind and rain, the men struggled to keep their ships afloat. They were frightened for their lives and desperate for any sign of safety. When they had reached a moment of calm in the raging tempest, some sailors spotted a light not far away from them. A light meant a lighthouse and safe harbour at last. A dozen or so ships turned their course to make for this light, men rowing with all their might for a chance of reprieve. All of a sudden, the first ship pitched back. Men were thrown like so much debris across the deck and into the deep waters behind. The ship had hit a rock. Now it started to capsize, trapping the remaining men on board. As panic seized the remaining ships, two more suffered the same fate. This was no safe harbour. It was a trap. The water was teeming with rocks. No one had a safe passage out. Some men were killed in the crashes, some sank within the ships, and some drowned trying to swim for land. Only a small number of sailors made it to shore. Each man crawled onto land alone, exhausted and drenched in water and fear. Half wild with shock, they began to stumble forward, hunting for any help they could find. The first sailor saw a man on the beach walking towards him his head concealed within a robe. The sailor put his arms out, gabbling half-formed words, begging for aid. The stranger nodded and then reached into his robe. From it, he drew a blade made from sharpened ram's bone. The sailor was so delirious he had no idea what was going on and continued shambling forwards. He was stabbed repeatedly in the chest and fell dead upon the beach. In the dark and chaos of a storm, it is hard to tell apart the light of a lighthouse from any other light on the shore. In those conditions, a man with a lantern can stand upon the headland and lure ships towards him. So had Norpleus drawn the ships into his trap and slaughtered every survivor on the beach. And he had not picked those ships at random. These were the ships of the Cephalenians, those who hold Zakynthos, Neraton, and Samos. It was too precise to be a coincidence. In fact, there was only one party of Cephalenians who were not killed that night. 
and those were the men of Ithaca. Not because of our prowess or our cunning, simply because we had been separated from our compatriots by an earlier storm, the one that had begun my hapless journey as I left Troy. For so long I cursed that storm. Now I see that without it, I would be dead. Perhaps Norplius never learned that the men of Ithaca were not among the slain. He had controlled every detail that he could to ensure his son's killer could not escape him. And by the time I was heard from again in my native lands, Norplius's old age had claimed him. So for the sake of my actions, the surviving Cephalenians all perished. Who was the hero in this tale? Was it Palamedes who had served the Greeks no matter what, even if it meant endangering a child? Who followed his cause until it killed him? Or myself, who robbed the Greeks of a skilled tactician and allowed my comrades to die for my crime? All for the sake of my son. However mankind judges me, it must judge Norplius the same. He understood that the world will not reward you for your loyalty, and that a man must act ruthlessly for the sake of his family. Sometimes I think back to him on the fields of Troy, cradling the head of his dead son, and I know if it had been me, and the head of Telemachus lay cold against my skin, I would have done exactly the same. The General's Dream explores Odysseus's relationship with the figure of Palamedes, who is one of Agamemnon's other generals during the Siege of Troy. These days, Palamedes is not a particularly well-known figure. He does not share the fame of Odysseus. And yet, he's remarkable for his status as an apparent equal of Odysseus, a culture hero who is credited with nothing less than the first invention of the Greek alphabet the discovery of numbers and standardising the measures that were used for trade and commerce. He was also said to have invented popular games of chance and strategy. Pausanias said that in Corinth there was a temple of fortune to which Palamedes dedicated the dice that he had invented. The invention of dice probably evolved out of the game of knuckle bones, which involved gambling on which side the ankle bones of a sheep would land. And this game itself, it probably evolved from a practice of divination. And indeed, many early dice were carved from bits of animal bone. Now, anachronistically, Palamedes has often also been claimed as the inventor of drafts and chess. But the games that were actually played in the ancient world were very different. In Homer, it's said that the Greek warriors Achilles and Ajax became so engrossed in a game during the Trojan War that they failed to notice that the battle was raging around them. The word that was used for this game is patea, which translates as pebbles, and it's thought it might have been similar to a later Roman game called Latrunculi, or the Game of Robbers. Palamedes is not a central figure in the most influential depictions of the Trojan War in Homer. This led Philostratus to declare that 
Palamedes found his bitterest enemies in Odysseus and Homer. For the one laid an ambush against him of people by whom he was stoned to death, while the other denied him any place in his epic. But his story is mentioned by the Roman poet Ovid in his Metamorphoses, which sees Odysseus, or Ulysses as the Romans called him, in a contest with fellow warrior Ajax to claim the armour of the fallen hero Achilles. Ajax specifically refers to the story about Odysseus and his betrayal of Palamedes. Our knowledge of Palamedes then comes from accounts by people like Philostratus, Apollodorus, Pausanias, Hyginus, and later Virgil and Ovid. And they tell how Agamemnon dispatched Palamedes to call Odysseus into service for the war against Troy. Odysseus attempted to dodge this draft and feign madness by ploughing his fields with a donkey and sowing it with salt. But seeing through the deception, Palamedes proved him sane by endangering the life of his infant son, Telemachus. Accounts of how Odysseus got his revenge at Troy differ. Many of them revolve around a forged letter from the Trojan king Priam, promising Palamedes riches if he would betray the army. Palamedes is then killed or executed, but this is said to happen in different ways. Sometimes it is Odysseus and the warrior Diomedes who stone him to death, or they drown him on a fishing trip. Or in another version, they lure him into a well with the promise of treasure, and then they fill the well with stones, killing Palamedes. In some accounts, Odysseus also makes sure that the treachery revealed by the forged letter is confirmed, and he does this by burying gold in a place where it looks like it's been beneath Palamedes' tent. Some say that Odysseus told Agamemnon that a dream had warned him that the Greeks needed to move their camp. When they moved their camp back to the place that it had been before, they discovered the freshly dug earth where Palamedes' tent had been, and they uncovered the chest of, chest of gold which they believed incriminated him. So the animosity between Odysseus and Palamedes thus forms another strand in the dense cluster of myths which surround the central myth of the siege, the fall, and the return of Troy. They are both portrayed as skilled speakers and tacticians. In the Iliad, we see Odysseus using his skills as an orator and a rhetorician to turn around the Greek army when they're in danger of turning around and sailing off for home. And he uses those skills again in that aforementioned contest to claim Achilles' armour. Palamedes' own reputation for intelligence and rhetorical skill is reflected in the defence of Palamedes, a text by the ancient Greek sophist Gorgias, which modelled rhetorical strategy. But the contest over the armour of Achilles highlights what may have been an important difference between the two. Because while Palamedes may have been considered honourable, Odysseus was often unscrupulous. Indeed, the defence of Palamedes opens with this line. This trial is concerned not with death, which comes to all, but with honour. Whether I am to die justly or unjustly, under a load of disgrace. So Sebastian's take on these myths in this episode pits the rhetorical skills and the strategic politics of these two generals against each other in a battle to control the sympathies and passions of the Greek camp and its leaders. 
Odysseus employs the tricky use of a dream slightly differently in Seb's version, using it as a strategy to point out Palamedes' tent rather than moving the Greek encampment. Odysseus' use of dreams to manipulate and control those around him is a recurring trope depictions of his wit and strategic sense. As well as causing the execution of Palamedes, the Odyssey also tells a tale about how a disguised Odysseus convinces a swineherd on Ithaca to give up his cloak by telling a story about how he, a stranger, had once met the legendary Odysseus and that that hero had tricked one of his own soldiers into dropping his cloak by saying that a dream had come to him that the Greek camp was too far away from the ships. The man jumps up and goes to deliver this message to Agamemnon, dropping his cloak, which is all that Odysseus really wanted. But it's interesting that the story about the dream is almost exactly the same as in the story about Palamedes. Does this mean that talking about dreams was a reliable way for Odysseus to manipulate Agamemnon? Or are they in fact part of the same plan, an incident? Were they being linked together by ancient storytellers? The story of Palamedes also carved out a significant role for his father in the mythos of the Trojan War and the Returns. Enraged by the execution of his son, Norpleus becomes a kind of villainous mastermind behind the misfortunes that befall the returning Greeks, a human antagonist who plans the destruction of a significant part of the Aegean fleet, instigates and enables the murder of Agamemnon by his wife Clytemnestra and Aegisophus. Aeschylus's play Agamemnon describes how the return of the Greeks is signalled by the lighting of beacons along the coast of Greece, which alerts the usurpers to Agamemnon's return. In other stories, Norpleus was said to have stationed spies all along the coast as well, and to have lured many of the Greek ships by lighting false beacons that drew them onto the rocks. He therefore seized the opportunity provided by the divine storms which enveloped them during their journey home. And it continues the central themes of these Trojan epics, in which the ego and hubris of the key players in the events of the war are revisited on them, not only by the gods, to whom they didn't repay proper respect or dues, but also by the families of their human victims. Sebastian's interpretation expands on the revenge narrative by representing the ships Nauplius destroyed as being specifically the ships of Odysseus's comrades from the Ionian Isles, although this, as far as I can tell, is not specified in ancient sources. Seen through the prism of Odysseus and Palamedes' first encounter, the story explores the similarities in character and temperament between them, and also this whole complex of characters. The father and son relationship between Odysseus and Telemachus is mirrored in that between Nauplius and Palamedes. Inevitably, in the context of Greek myth, these similarities are not the basis of consensus and harmony, but of discord and tragedy. Ancient Greek pottery art famously shows the scene of Ajax and Achilles engrossed in their game during the Trojan War and failing to notice the battle around them. And this scene might also fittingly recall the character of Palamedes as the mythical inventor of these games. Indeed, some authors would tell that Palamedes was observed in the underworld after his death, playing at dice with his old comrades. 
Ajax the Great, and Phocytes. All three of them were men who had suffered at the hands of Odysseus. During his speech to turn back the Greeks from their run for home, Odysseus had beat Phocytes, and Ajax the Great committed suicide after losing that contest to gain the armour of Achilles. Next time on Lore and Legend, Odysseus tells of his time on the island of Kirki, and he hears what happened when the sorceress Medea dared to use her magic to lay a spell on Selene, the goddess of the moon. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 10, The General's Dream. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Sebastian O'Dell. This episode featured music by Michael Levy and Sakilo. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org, and full audio credits are available on our website. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and the research on their sources in world folklore, you can find us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. On Facebook and Twitter, search for at of law and legend. If you like what you hear and you want to help us keep on making a great show, please consider supporting the podcast with a one-time contribution through Ko-Fi or supporting us regularly as a patron. You can find details on the website of how to do that. So once again, sweet dreams, plain sailing, and thanks to you all for listening, Storyfolk.